0: Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode, we have Andy Tracy. Andy is currently the A manager for the Columbus Clippers, which is an affiliate of the Cleveland Indians organization. Andy's someone who's been in professional baseball for a really long time. He had an outstanding career as a player and uh, just all of his accolades speak for themselves. But once he made that transition to coaching, he's Done some really, really great things and and moved up the ladder really quickly. He's already been a hitting coordinator for several years for the Philadelphia Phillies. He's been a minor league manager, Triple A hitting coach last year with the Indians, and now he's the Triple A manager, too. So, Great stuff, great insight just from a uh, experience and someone who's been there and, and done it at, at the major league level as a player and now helping guys get to that level too. So if you enjoy the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes uh, just so others can get, get a chance to learn and grow with everyone else who's already been listening to this. If you're someone who is interested in working with me personally, um, whether that be in the Cincinnati, Ohio area or remote training, please send me an email, jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Andy Tracy. All right, we now welcome on Andy Tracy. Andy, thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So, uh, first off, anyone who who can hit 18 bombs, nearly 300, with almost 500 on base percentage at age 37 in AAA, uh, knows what they're doing with the bat. So, I mean, clearly, I just want to say, like, congratulations on a great career as a player. Uh, Really impressive numbers. I mean, just over the course of a really long time, and I'm actually glad that, that you're on the show today, just because we can talk about some of the nuances in hitting, but also, curly you've had a lot of success doing it your way, too, as a hitter. Um, but for those who don't know you, maybe just a brief background, I know you went to Bowling Green, but for those who don't know anything about you, can you just uh, give a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, I grew up in, in Bowling Green, Ohio. Um, fortunate enough to play both baseball and football in college at BJSU uh i'll be quick got drafted as a junior by the reds decided to go back uh play my senior year went to montreal thought i was going to get uh, a little bit more money and that didn't work out as always in the draft but uh went to montreal started the the path from there and then you know played parts of 16 years uh in the states 10 years of winter ball i played a year in japan uh retired in 11 after playing in reno a triple a with uh the Diamondbacks, and then started managing in the Phillies organization and then moved up to the hitting coordinator, assistant field coordinator. Then we separated, uh, separated, and I came over to Cleveland, and uh, here I am now. I, last year I was the hitting hitting coach for the Clippers in Columbus AAA and now currently uh, in the manager for the Columbus Clippers.
0: So you said 11 years of playing Winter Bowl? Ten years, yeah. Ten years. So, what, so that's – I mean – that's unheard of. I mean, how how did how did the how did that thought process go? I mean, was it just because most guys, it seems, in the off season, they're worried about want to go home, I like take a break for a few weeks, and then then get back in the weight room and, and work on different stuff, you know, wherever they live in the off season. So, what was your thought process of of wanting to go play winter ball for ten years?
1: You know, just at bats and uh, getting more people to see you try to get scouts to put, have a report on you. So when you do go in and try to get a job that uh, there's more information on you and obviously you make some money down there too. So that helps uh, bringing back money and taking care of the family. But uh, I really enjoy winter ball. Each, each country's uh, different than each other and each, each uh, of the leagues are different. They're totally independent of each other, uh, the way they go about things. But really excited i'm a big proponent of winter ball especially for prospects as long as you know there's not a coronavirus going on or or some yeah. some uh some uh trouble you know down in the country like the venezuela or something like that so where was your favorite place to, to play winter ball the, the dominican is my favorite uh, by far travel and baseball the level of competition is really good and you said you played over in japan too yeah one year in japan in '05. uh Got sold there by the Rockies and played for Rakuten, and it was their first season. Um, they're an expansion team over in Japan.
0: How was it playing over in Japan after playing so many years over in the States? I mean, you hear that they, they pitch backwards over there. They do things a little bit different. So what was that adjustment like as a hitter?
1: Oh, it was difficult. Uh, they pitched different in the Pacific League than the Central League. I think I was – kind of to the point where they're getting Americanized baseball over there a little bit. The beginnings of it was started when I got over there, but there was a huge adjustment period. I think the biggest thing is not knowing any of the pitchers you're going to face. And you almost wanted to face an American because you knew who he was and you knew you could have a plan and a plan against that player. But when you're facing, you know, the, the, the Japanese or the Koreans or anybody over there, we had no background. All we had was video and percentages and, the tells that they were giving us from a from a scouting perspective
0: so how would you go about in that bat for, for um, when you're facing someone in japan and you don't know anything about them or you just watching them in the bullpen before the game and just as the game goes on making adjustments
1: yeah the, the japanese bullpens are usually behind the dugout so they're hidden they're in the oh. building so you don't get to see them there so you watch a lot of video, and you get the percentages, you know, of what they're throwing in counts and, and where they're throwing. Just kind of like you do here, but you got to watch more video so you can pick up release points or maybe their tell more often uh, than you could in the states. Oh, yeah. And I did. I did struggle over there. I mean, it was it was a struggle for me early. I uh, had to relearn the strike zone a little bit. Obviously the. You're kind of a rookie over there. You, you're not a veteran guy like you would be in AAA here. So it's a, it's a learning process for you.
0: So when you say relearn the strike zone, are the umpires calling? Is it a little bit different over there? Or Yeah,
1: I thought they called the ball in the Central League off the plate in a little more. And then the Pacific League, I thought they called it off the plate away a little bit more.
0: So when you're talking about relearning the strike zone, or, or let's just talk about just learning the strike zone in general, what advice would you do have to – players out there listening to this on, on how to go, how to go about that? Is there, is it just a conscious effort? Is it just a focus in when you're in the cage even, and, and that just carries over into the game? Like what, what advice would you give on, on learning the strike zone?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's as controlling the strike zone is huge right now in the game. Uh, it goes just as much with mechanics. And I think you have to match it up with your plan. So when we're talking about the strike zone, it has to match your plan a lot of times and you also have to understand what your strengths and weaknesses are uh, to execute that that plan in in the strike zone that, you, in the part of the strike zone that you want to hit. So, I think you really have to work on it uh, in the cages as as much, um, you know, machine work, velocity training as you can get, um, so you can get comfortable with understanding what you want to attack and what you are not going to be able to attack very good because that's not the strength uh, of your offensive game
0: were there machines over in Japan that you could work on that did they was that a thing over there machine work
1: yeah there were machines over there yeah yeah they actually have a, a bunch of indoor facilities that specifically are meant for the for the teams with large infields and you can hit live in there and uh, hit off machines I mean they the their work days are, are humongous the workloads were not a problem over there.
0: Isn't it also a thing over there where the coaches are throwing – I don't know if it's maybe it's coaches or if it's just players who are throwing live essentially before the game and it's not just feel-good BP?
1: Yeah, you usually have X players throwing, so it would be a maybe a lefty and a righty. have two, two tunnels going uh, out on the field. And the funny thing over there is you could – the umpires who are in the field would work on their strike calls during batting practice, so you could have an 0 for 7 with seven punch-outs in BP already, and you're going to the game like <laughs> – what's going on? But uh, they would work on their their craft during batting practice while we're hitting uh, off live pitching of players that used to play or are still trying to get back into the game.
0: Did you feel that helped you as a hitter?
1: I think it did. I think it helped me as looking back on it now. At the time I did not enjoy it because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't used to that process. I just wanted, you know, how we're, we're changing uh, the game right now. It's, more just getting that comfort zone during batting practice and we weren't used to getting challenged. Um, I think it would have helped to kind of wade into that maybe two or three times a week and then transition into the whole week. But, uh, I wasn't hitting at the time, so I couldn't say anything to anybody about not wanting to hit live. So I was just doing whatever they told me to do.
0: So is that something that you took from Japan and maybe have you implemented it all here in the States?
1: Yeah, I think I think we have as a, in a as an industry um, across the board, especially in player development. It, it's it's going to get to the big leagues. Uh, it it just has to come through the system with the the prospects moving up to the big leagues. I think that velocity training uh, is more prevalent in the game right now.
0: So you, you're saying that you think over, over time we'll see essentially the same thing in the big leagues as you saw over in Japan, however many years ago that was with X players. I think he, I
1: think you could see that, but I mean, if a guy is good enough to throw uh you know 92 off the off the dirt and get people out he's probably not going to be a bullpen thrower he's going to be in somebody's system that's the problem we're going to have i think that's true
0: better get my arm ready
1: yeah I'm, i can't do that i know that so
0: yeah well how did you enjoy uh transitioning from playing for all those years into uh managing right out of the gate i mean was that hard to to give up playing after all those years
1: you know, I was I was really ready to to hang it up. I was done. My body wasn't reacting uh, the way it used to. And when you play in the PCL with all the travel and the flights, it takes it takes a beating on your body and your mind. Uh, it's a little different than the international league because there's a lot of buses and and sleeper buses. But the, at the end of that year, I knew probably halfway through the season I was done. So I was just finishing up um, really good conversations. I initially signed as a hitting coach with the Diamondbacks to go to Missoula, Montana, I think, and then got interviewed for that manager position. And they, they were nice enough to let me go interview for that. So I, I felt I was ready to step away from the playing side of it and get into the coaching side.
0: How, how did you like being a manager?
1: Loved it. You know, I, I, I love being a leadership position. I love helping players get better. I I'm, want to be very transparent to players, and I want them to be open with me understanding how difficult it is to play the game. And I, I was looking forward to manage for a long time. And um, after that first year managing, I got interviewed for that hitting coordinator position. It was, it was nice to have that because I got a chance to go home and see my kids more often when you're in that coordinator role than, than straight on the bus every day.
0: Yeah, how is that coordinator role? Is it just you're based out of home and then you just travel every few days essentially?
1: Yeah, pretty much. You go out, you know, 12 to 14 days a month or maybe, you know, more than that, sorry. You go out on a 12-day trip, let's say, to hit all your affiliates. You come home for four or five days and you go back out. And uh, just have really good communication with your coaches. Um, let them have autonomy um, and support whatever they're doing at the affiliates. And then uh, back them up when you come in into the cities and uh, go into the cage and, and, and work with them and what they're doing with the players.
0: So you're essentially coaching the coaches as, as that role.
1: Yeah, I think there's. I think there's two sides to it, but I think supporting your coaches and trusting them, and trusting their eyes is is a huge component of coordinating. Um, yeah, you do coach the coaches, but uh, you also have your hands in with the players and with the player plans, what we're trying to execute in those player plans and their goal sheets.
0: What do you, as a hitter yourself, who's had a ton of success in professional baseball? I mean, what what's your take on some of the – just all the, the nuances in hitting right now when it comes to technology and everything? And, I mean, you've had success without that.
1: Yeah, I like it. I mean, I just think that it's not one universal thing. One thing – I may like Blast. You may like Rap Soto. Uh, this guy might not like it. The other guy might like hit tracks or he might want to use the K-Vest and he doesn't like something else. He doesn't – so I think you got to find out what the player likes and what his numbers he's trying to – get to and stay in those ranges. Um, don't become too reliant on that stuff, but uh, make a holistic approach to hitting with plan, timing, uh, mechanics, technology, all the above. I think the technology part is is really important when you're doing a swing change, probably in a swing camp in the off season. So you can have evidence uh, based information for the player and that he can build on that. Um, honestly, wish I would have had more of that when I played because you could have hit those numbers when you were struggling a little bit and go back and see where you were to get back to where you needed to be.
0: Now I know you can't get into specific details about any players about, you know, within your organization or anything like that, but let's just say you're working with players maybe locally in the Columbus area, like high school kids, for example, and you're talking about doing a swing change what you know, we have all this technology, but I, I heard something the other day, which which really resonated with me is you know emotions affect mechanics more than anything else. So it's like before we get into doing any technology or anything like that we like, we need like the kid needs to be transparent and like we need to have that trust in the relationship with the kid to, to know that he's like emotionally on the same page. Like there's he doesn't didn't his girlfriend didn't just break up with him back home and like that's affecting. So all, I feel like that's just there's so many things that go into hitting that it's just, it, that's what makes it so difficult as a coach.
1: Yeah, I think that's relevant in anything we do in life. I mean, that's just not hitting if you're, if you're changing a, a guy's shot in basketball or, or something in football, but you know, hitting's prevalent because they think you can just come in and, and turn on the switch in a lesson uh, where it's a process. Um, yeah, emotions are a huge part of it. I think if, if they're not invested into that change or making that adjustment, it's not gonna happen anyhow. And I think a lot of times, uh, we run to swing changes too quickly without getting to know the player. And I think that happens in the pro game, too. Um, we've all been, I've been a victim of that before, uh, honestly, growing as a coach. But uh, you just got to learn your players, get their honest feedback, and, and see where you can go from there. And then, you know, maybe in the past they had already tried that swing change and they didn't like it. So we have to build a plan out uh, that's player-driven, I think.
0: It seems that, you know, I remember talking to Kevin Uquist, and one of the things he was saying was, you know, the older he got, the less he swung. Was that, did, was that the same thing with you and your
1: career? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think that once you hit that feeling and you got it, you don't need to keep looking for the, for the bad swings. I think that you see that in the pro game now, too, The the workloads uh, kind of lessen when they're going well, uh, and they know when they're in a good spot. And then they just get out of the cage. I know that I have optional BP every single day for our AAA team. They can come and take it, or they, they don't have to. So uh, they just got to get on the field and get their defensive reps. But I think the the player driven atmosphere is is very important uh, for these upper level guys.
0: Do you feel it's hard to work with those upper level guys during the season because they're so wor- they're so close to the bait leagues? That they really don't want to make, to, like a change at all.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's difficult, especially if you get to know your player. Um, the bottom line is you're you're at a point where you got some guys coming down from the big leagues, you got prospects coming up, and you got some guys just sitting there, you know, making some money. They all want to play in the big leagues. So how do we do that uh, together, from a coaching staff, for a player? You know, strength and conditioning. Uh, athletic trainers I think it's a holistic approach especially at that level because we want to get that extra you know four, five, six percent out of them to get them up to the Bay Leagues and stay if we're not open and honest and they're not open and honest we're doing each other a disservice uh, and, and I think it's really important to include the medical and strength and conditioning and the analytics department our fellows we have along with um, any other aspect that the player thinks is going to benefit him
0: so when you say you have an optional BP, like how many how, – how what percentage of players will show up usually day-to-day? I mean, is it most of them or is it just some of them?
1: Uh, I mean, you, we usually – I mean, eight eight guys, two groups of four usually. And then the rest of them will hit in the cage. Maybe we'll just do uh, early BP with a couple guys on, you know, fastball machine on the field or random uh, overhand BP or angled BP on the field. Just do something different uh, to change it up. And then I just put up a list the night before, and then they would they would fill out. Now, that was me as a hitting guy. Uh, obviously, I'm going to have the autonomy of my hitting coach this year could do whatever he wanted, but uh, that's kind of how I did it. And I, I want the hitting coach to take on his own personality in, in uh, the practice. When you were a
0: hitting coordinator, you're dealing with all levels of the minor leagues. And so you just, you brought up a great example right there. You know, it's a higher level guys you're working with now in AAA. but if it's lower level in the minor leagues, is, is it not optional?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I've never been a hitting coach at the lower levels. Okay, uh, but
0: when, you, when you were a hitting coordinator, would you coach the coaches on, on like saying like, Hey, like they need to be doing X, Y, and Z.
1: You know, I really trusted my coaches to make the decision what they needed to do each day. Um, that's why people get hired, you know, to trust him and give them autonomy and authority to do what they, they think is is important for the player. And uh, I would always have the coaches back if he made a decision. Now, we probably shouldn't skip BP for seven straight days, uh, obviously, <laughs> but there's days when you need off and there's days when you need a show and go um, if there's such thing as that anymore. But, uh, you know, the coaches uh, know their players. If they don't know their players, then we're going to have a problem with that.
0: As a manager, how do you get to know your players when there's so many different guys coming up and down all the time?
1: Yeah, I think our organization does a good job of communicating. Um, from level to level, managers discuss things. We have manager one-on-one meetings every single day in our organization, so we'll hit a player <laughs> every day, uh, check in with them. A lot of times it's, it's uh, paperwork involved. A lot of times it's just us sitting and talking. Um, You know, back when I played, you didn't see a lot of managers roaming through the clubhouses. I think that's prevalent now, where you just go out and hang out with them and talk. Uh, Obviously, if you're in a clubhouse that's that's big enough to do that, and we've all been in those small ones. But uh, I think just getting to know the player, having him understand he can come into the office and talk to any of the coaches at any time, and 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 let us know what he's feeling. And and you know, maybe he comes in and says, "I'm not going to do anything today," and I'll be like, "All right, you're. I mean, you're still in the lineup, just." do what you need to do to get ready and uh, just having that open door policy and, and continue to communicate and have consistency throughout your organization from, from top to bottom, delivery messages.
0: One of the questions that I sometimes get, um, and it's just, you're going to be perfect to be able to answer this question as a manager, but, is, you know what do managers do during the game you know because you're in charge of everything essentially but I mean you're giving autonomy to your pitching coaches and hitting coaches and things like that but at the end of the day it is your decision to make certain changes so are you just constantly collaborating with your pitching and hitting coaches is it I mean what are you doing during the game
1: yeah I think preparing for the game is the hardest part you know getting your defensive set up if it's straight shift two strike shift where we're playing the defenders. Um, letting your bench coach move his move his move the players in the outfield usually and then uh, I actually was the infield guy last year uh, manzo uh, uh, Tony manzolino was our manager so he gave us the defensive cards and that's how we align the defenses um, and that that's a really important part of it just so the pitcher collaborating with the pitchy the pitchy coach and the staff to see where our defenders are going to be so they have some feedback in that also and then obviously, Giving pickoffs or slide steps, anything when guys are on base. But you're you're definitely in communication the whole game on the bench with your your pitching coach and, and your hitting coach and, and your bench coach, uh, continuously asking questions and seeing, getting their answers. It doesn't mean I'm going to follow them a lot of times, and we, we shouldn't always follow them. But we're just gathering information to see what I want to do next or what the manager I'm working for would like to do next.
0: Another thing that I've heard is is you know as guys go up to the major leagues, you know one of the one of the things that it seems is kind of forgotten is or like a lost art is is the art of base running and being a good base runner. Is that is that something that you can see changing in the future? Where like hey, like more and more people are going to start emphasizing that, and that's going to become more of a an important aspect and not so overlooked to just hitting you know the kind of the fun stuff of hit of playing offense,
1: yeah, I think it's relative right now. I think organizations are hiring guys specifically to teach base running. I think we have to understand that base stealing and base running are a lot different. You can lose a lot of games on the base path um just by being lazy, you know not getting your secondaries understanding when to take chances understanding the outfield arms there's a whole spectrum that goes into that but the bottom line is whatever we make important becomes important so if you're a manager and you make that important and you show video of things that you are not are not being consistent with on the base path if we show the player that I think uh, they have trouble uh, we all have trouble arguing video it tells the truth. So if we just show players and, and be transparent and say, Hey man, this is not the way we are going to run the bases. Uh, they're going to get, they're going to get the, the feedback from you. And then whatever we make important becomes important. And, and that's kind of my mantra on, on base running. I love that. I love that. When you're,
0: I know you're at a, you're at a high level uh, in professional baseball, but when you're, you know, watching maybe even just on Twitter and you're seeing kids and, and uh, travel baseball, like. What, what's the one thing that you wish you would seen put more uh, emphasis on from a player development standpoint
1: for amateur baseball well that's a tough question i have a I have a thirteen u son so I'm in the college okay. right now but uh, I think just um, for me positive mindset for the kids I see a lot of guys jumping kids too often where yeah, we all want our kids to go to college and play sports we, Is that possible Probably not. Um, do we spend money on them playing travel sports? Yeah, definitely a lot of money. So we want a uh, good coaching, but remembering that they're kids still and they they want to enjoy the game. If they're not enjoying it, they're not going to come back. And I think, uh, that aspect of travel baseball can get lost at times. Just the pressure that the kids, uh, receive from a lot of the coaches and the parents sitting behind the gate, uh, as opposed to just letting them, you've already done all your work, let them go out and play the game. And, and we'll talk about stuff afterwards. I think and it's I, also. You know, I'm a. I'm a culprit of that too at times with my son. Uh, yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Like there's times when I, I don't yell at him from the sidelines, but I'll get to him after the game, and and then you kind of, look at yourself and go, man, what are you doing? This kid's 13, so, uh, it's it's still relevant to let the kids have a really good time when they're playing sports.
0: I think it's also tough though, and it works against them that they're having now. Colleges are starting to recruit so. F- dang young I mean there was I just a school reached out to me just yesterday a big uh, time a power five school about a freshman about a kid who's a freshman and it's like when I was a freshman I was just trying to make the the freshman high school baseball team I was nervous about that and now you got kids who are committing as freshmen I think that just that doesn't help the the situation of what you're you're talking about just kids having fun
1: yeah I mean they're getting commits in eighth grade ninth grade I know I have a guy that just committed to Auburn from up here to go with me. And I was like, man, it's just early. I was just worried about passing my math test, see if I could sit <laughs> with somebody at lunch and then maybe make it on time this practice. But uh, man, the, the game is a little different now. I mean, the whole industry from from ma- major leagues, minor leagues to college to travel, it's, it's drastically different. And I think that we all just need to come together and slow down a little bit. I don't know the answer. Yeah. I don't have the answers for all of it, but I, I agree with you. Like we're getting freshmen to commit <laughs> and they haven't even thrown a ball in, in uh varsity baseball yet.
0: Right. So do you, you, do you work with kids in the off season?
1: I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: What, how is it, how, how do you, how do you work with them knowing that a, it's only going to be for just a, you know, a few months, but, but B that they're, they're so young and they, they, I, I, I just th- it seems as if, to me, and again, I didn't play as long as you did professionally, but a lot of learning as a hitter comes from years of failure and years of of knowing your swing, what worked, what didn't work. So it's tough to just, you can't just skip all those years in a sense, but how do you go about working with kids knowing, you know, you have all this experience, but you're trying to just give them a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't think that, you had to play upper level baseball to be really good coaches. I don't believe in, I think a good coach is a good coach. It doesn't matter what, what they did. But, uh, first of all, I usually talk to the kid about what, what their high school coach or what their travel ball coach expects of them, or have they done swing changes with their coach? Because you're not making my team. You're going to have to make that coach's team. So what does he want to execute? What do they want you to get better at? You know, what are his player goals? Did he give you any player goals or, you know, uh, programs that he wants you to accomplish in the winter and then and we'll just add and subtract from that and most of my guys are return guys so i've had them for years um just continue to you know do random practice get them on different drills instead of just you know block practice hitting off the tee you know we've all been in a lesson we can yeah. make the kid look really good at the 27th minute mark when the parents are still sitting there you can throw the ball in the right spot but that's not what it's about and i think you touched on it Understanding that failure is the most important part of learning, and it's hard for a, a kid to fail in December in the cage, and we have to find that atmosphere to do it. Obviously, there's a lot more facilities that have better technology um, than I have, but you can in, invent some drills and stuff to, to give them random practice and, and make them struggle and want them to struggle and, and see how they react to it.
0: So do you have your own facility or where do you work I out? Of?
1: No, I, I work at a couple of facilities. Yeah. Just a couple of my buddies own, own ones, own okay. facilities. Yeah. Here, here in Columbus. Okay.
0: Yeah. I, uh, speaking of, of technology and how, you know, you just mentioned that wherever you, you, you know, the facilities that you're at, they don't have technology. I think that some of the best coaches are the ones with the lowest budgets who don't have access to much, but they're, they, they, it forces you to be really creative and it forces you to, to really kind of get, get in the trenches of, of how I'm going to make this player better. So yeah, I'm, I like technology, but it's not, you don't have to have it to, to develop a player in my opinion.
1: Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I I know that. And you're probably in the industry too is a lot of these families want to see the bells and whistles. Uh, they're looking for that stuff. And a lot of times you don't need that. You just need a guy uh, in the cage grinding it out with you. Um, and get getting feedback, and, and you know having some having some strong conversations about things and disagreeing on things. That's okay. It's not always going to be hunky dory, and we're just going to roll through this hour lesson. Uh, it's okay to to struggle and and challenge yourself. December eleventh in Columbus, Ohio, when it's snowing outside, um, <laughs> but that is the difficulty of of private lessons, and I think they're very beneficial to people as long as. There's a conversation between the the instructor and the player, and and the and like you said, emotionally we're all on the same page. We're going the same direction. Uh, if we're pulling the rope in the same direction, usually pretty good things happen.
0: Well, that's yeah, it sounds like I mean, you said you just had a kid to just commit to Auburn. I mean, that's pretty that's a pretty big time program. Um, one um one of the things that I also wanted to bring up to you um, as a hitter, and you've you played you know all over the place, and, and I'm sure faced high velocity is and it's now we're watching the playoffs. And I saw the other day the Yankees, the that one Yankees game. I think the average velocity, the average was 97 miles an hour. How, as a hitter, when you're in the box, I mean, what, what's your thought process to be on time for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, just get going and and try to match your plan with what he's what he's throwing. I mean, I think velocity has went up, but uh, the use of the curveball has has surpassed, has went up more. Uh, Than the fastball, so it's interesting. That's where the mental side of it comes in. With how are we going to attack this pitcher and what is our plan against him? Do we want to go to his elevated fastball, his rising fastball? Do we want to get on a breaking ball? Do we want to sit in zones? Do we want to sit on sides of the plates? Do we want to? What would you do? It matters what the guy has that day and what his what his execution is like and how he is deep in the count. If he's early in the count, throwing breaking balls for strikes and then backing it up with four seamers or something, you know, that's all preparation. Uh, Hitting coaches go through and and try to eliminate pitches uh, from that pitcher. Maybe, maybe he can't execute a fastball in. So we just eliminate a heater in. Um, Maybe he's got a tell on something with his glove. I mean, that's so prevalent in the game right now. And you can, if if you can know 80% of the time, he's going to throw a breaking ball with his fingers out of his glove. I mean, I would go to that. A lot of guys don't like that, but you can give that information to the player, so I think it's it's ever evolving you know your plan and you you're gonna have a team approach at times off a certain pitcher, but you also have to have that individual one to know what you can execute and know what you can handle and know what you need to eliminate
0: when you were hitting did did you were you good at picking up if a pitcher was tipping pitches with his glove or something like that?
1: I felt pretty confident on doing stuff yeah even if even if I thought I was Completely right, it, it actually helped me set a plan. So even if I was wrong, it, it gave me a plan. It wasn't just me standing in the box hitting. I at least went to something and I can handle that. I, I don't mind if guys come back and say, you know I wasn't even on that stuff. I said I was sitting soft and big, all right, that's a plan. I can handle that and, and we'll move on to the next thing. maybe we have to make an adjustment, but I like the answer. there's no wrong answer to that when you have a executing a plan. Uh, obviously it changes with guys in scoring position or man minute third and field in all that. But the conversation, if he comes back and said, I had a really good plan, he executed better than I did at that bat I can handle that. I don't know how, what do you think on that? You feel that way too?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I like that because uh, I mean, like you had mentioned earlier, it's fit. You, you kind of have a 50, 50 chance still, if it's especially if they're throwing almost half curve balls in a sense. So if you're looking for something instead of nothing and just reacting, I don't know, that's, that can be tough with all these guys. And it, the plate's so small. I'm in my cage right now, so I'm looking at the plate. It's so small, but dang, does it feel so big when you're in the box and he's pounding away hard or, uh, you know, a nasty slider, change-up, whatever it may be. So I, I'm with you. And, uh, you know, I said a day, uh, few days ago, the players who can adapt and adjust pitch-to-pitch um, – pitch, and at bat to bat just the quicker they can adjust like those are the better hitters I mean it's it's and that's what I try and try to get the younger kids I work with in high school to to understand like you have to adapt and even going back to what you're talking about with game planning once the game starts in a sense kind of throw that out the window I mean you even uh, uh, I think spoke on it a little bit there where what's he doing during the game, you know, is he can he not find that fastball? That's he usually pounds hard inside against righties. Is he now he's only going away? Well, now we have to now we have to you know adjust. So it's it is a constant game of adjustment. It, that's why I like to think hitting is more of an art than a than a science. But I I think we need to do this implement science too. But um, I don't know. But that's why I like I like talking to, to guys like you though who've played for a really long time and, and had success just to see what your experience is like in the box and and what your approach has been in the box
1: yeah i I think you touched on earlier also is like when we're in the cage and we're hitting with velo or overhand short uh you know maximizing your plan are you sitting middle in you sitting middle way you sitting up sitting soft i mean and if you swing at something that's not there understanding that that's a failure it's okay uh, you're learning that way and I think a lot of times we just get in the in the cage and, and just hit whereas let's define what we're trying to do with each each swing or each plan um, and, and and you know as a coach if he's if he's sitting in and you're throwing away and he's taking it he's sitting in so you got to get back in there so it's it's a it's a cat and mouse game in those lessons also and I, I love doing that with kids just because I know it's a struggle when you're younger for guys hitting spots when you're 11, 12, 13 year old, but to prepare them for that high score, that elite travel level, we need to do that. I think.
0: So with your son, for example, do you, do you emphasize a two strike approach for him?
1: I haven't had to with him. He's, he's uh, kind of done on his own. So I didn't emphasize it too much. I know that we talked a lot. I talk a lot about, using the ground as leverage, getting into the ground. Um, That's kind of what my basis is a lot of time with hitting and then using that to parlay into the upper half and then sequencing uh, all that good stuff. So
0: is that what you did as a hitter?
1: Mm, That's a good question. I just know that I, I need, I had to find over years, what were my three foundational points that I had to look at if I was struggling? You know, one for me, was like striding into the plate. So I was closing myself off. I couldn't you know, I couldn't rotate properly. Um, my hands would, I'd lower my hands a little bit at times, uh, not knowing that I would do it. So that was one of my foundational, I'd go back and look up video on that. And that's what I try to get guys to do, uh, in the cage, uh, with lessons or even at an affiliate or at a swing camp. Like we were just at site two. I said, if you're getting anything out of this site two or alternate site, um, and you're a young player, find the, Two or three th- things that you need to go back to when you're struggling. This is a good year to figure that out. Uh, when we were at that that alternate site, so that was kind of my support role to the hitting coach uh, at site two.
0: Did you did you ever make big swing changes throughout your career?
1: I made one big one between A ball and Double A. I had a really good year at A ball. I went up to Double A, struggled a little bit, and then we added a a, a toe tap. So that was really difficult for me because I was kind of a front foot guy. So we had to find something to occupy time. And we came up with a toe tap or, you know, or I called it a gather step. I didn't like the turn toe tap because my my brain couldn't wrap around it. So I had to change the terminology just to fit what I could think about. So I called it a gather step. And uh, I honestly, I think I went over spring training that year, with <laughs> probably 50 at bats, 47 punch outs, And I'm like, I'm about to get on a Greyhound and go home or something. And then about a month into the season, they let let me go a month into the season. I figured it out a little bit. It just was timing and confidence and all that, you know, the emotional stuff got involved. So, Uh, and then as years went on, I tried to get rid of the double tap. As I got older and tried to get to, as a bench player, to get a bench job in the big leagues, I didn't need that much movement and I could never get rid of it. So I was catch 22 across the board.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. It, it always it fascinates me how you go on Twitter and you see all these technical terms. And, and I, I think I'm probably guilty of it too. But when you actually talk to big leaguers, like how simple they, make, they think hitting is to them. Like it's not – it just – and you can maybe – there's one outlier in Joey Votto who's extremely analytical. But I'd say like 95% at least are just – they keep it so simple.
1: Yeah, it's – you know, their swing is really – efficient and effective and they just need to execute their plans uh, up there so you're exactly right i i believe that most of the big league guys like you said 95 percent of them are just like i'm gonna get in the box get ready for this pitch and i'm gonna do damage on it um and they work on their swing stuff you know in the cage or, or in the off season and that's it they're done they're, they're strapping it on and and uh, the third deck never lies. The one, the one thing in baseball that never lies is, is the white lines. So uh, when you walk in those white lines, they never lie. So that's why uh, the big leagues is a really special place.
0: My, my last question for you, you know, playoffs are going on right now. And, you know, every time someone hits a home run, like Ronald Acuna or somebody like that and bat flips, you know, Twitter goes crazy and people love it. People hate it. Like,
1: what What are your thoughts? You know, I'm – I was a massive traditionalist uh, probably up to three or four years ago. And then I really don't care anymore if he bat flips or pumps his glove or anything on the mound um, because it's going to happen. So we're going to worry about things that we can't control. I don't have a problem with it anymore. Obviously, I'm coming from the complete opposite side. Uh, Maybe five years ago, I was like, we gotta, we gotta do everything traditional and I've completely changed, uh, my, my beliefs on that. Now there's some things that go overboard, but, uh, I don't really care anymore about that stuff. It's something that I, I can't control and neither can the other players. So.
0: Yeah. Andy, this has been a lot of fun, man. I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, great stuff, great content and, you know, wishing nothing but the best, man. I know that I know, you know, you're, you're going to do awesome uh, next year as, you know, second year being a manager, even though this year you weren't able to be the AAA manager because of the coronavirus. But wish you nothing but the best, man.
1: Thanks for having me on. It was awesome. I appreciate it. No problem.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Make sure to go subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development. Until next week, hope everyone stays safe.